Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Tamil Innovator Spotlight. The Tamil Innovator Spotlight is an online series which puts the spotlight on individuals from the global Tamil community who are building great products, services, and initiatives. Our latest event is brought to you in partnership with mystartupdojo.com and tamilculture.com. And by the way, before we get into things, if you like free things, you're definitely going to want to stick around till the end. We have some really, really cool surprises lined up for you. So um, I see some people are streaming in. It's awesome. Before we get into things, I'd love to introduce myself. My name is Angelina Rainthorn, and I am so excited to be your host this evening. I'm program director at mystartupdojo.com, host of the Young at Heart podcast, and two times robotics world champion. I founded my first venture when I was 15, and now I'm committed to spreading that spirit of entrepreneurship with other young people through Startup Dojo and through this amazing series. Now, without further ado, I'm so excited to welcome our featured guest speaker this evening, Abarna Raj. She's the CEO of Palmera.org. Abarna is a lawyer by training, and she started her career as a social strategy consultant at PricewaterhouseCoopers, working with companies to create shared value by aligning social impact with overarching business strategy. Since then, she's led the sustainability portfolio at Layton, Australia's largest construction and mining services company. From this, she continued her passion for social strategy consulting at Social Ventures Australia, Australia broadening her clientele to government or, or agencies and nonprofits. And in 2014, Abarna co-founded Palmera. Palmera is an amazing development agency that works in Sri Lanka to help vulnerable families earn a living income. And today we're going to be exploring her story and journey, building this incredible organization. Thank you so much, Abarna, for being with us this evening. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so let's jump right into this. Um, before we get into things, let's talk a bit more about Palmera. How did it, be, how did it begin? And you know, what's the mission behind what you're doing? How did, what inspired it all? Well, Palmera began when I was in my final year of uni and we had gone back to Sri Lanka to I guess learn about our roots and our identity. And while we were there, the Boxing Day 2004 tsunami had hit and we were in the midst of disaster. And as someone just about to start my career, it completely changed my outlook on life. Um, I was all set to um, become an investment banker maybe, you know, earn a lot of money and, uh, you know, my perspective just started to change. It took me a while to eventually do Palmera, but um, Palmera began with the initial group of people who were there, who saw it and who realised that we could do something to contribute at that time. It then um, kind of moved in from a volunteer organisation in 2014, as you said, to a kind of a startup where we quit our job, a couple of us quit our jobs and, you know, went all in on the organisation. And the mission is really about helping vulnerable people earn a living income. We're really passionate about giving people the means so that they can stand on their two feet and kind of live the way that they want to live, not waiting for the next handout or kind of living a life of dependency. So accelerating pathways to a living income is what we're really passionate about. And that's not an easy thing to achieve. Um, it's multi-dimensional barriers that we have to solve for, um, but that's the ultimate goal um, that we're that we're seeking to do. Right. So tell me more about. You mentioned that there are various barriers that you need to go through. 
before reaching your end goal. So tell me more, a bit more about what that looks like. What are the specific problems that you're dealing with on the ground and how does Palmyra work to overcome them? Well, the challenges, you know, really depends on the context that you're in, but in the post-war areas that we work, of course, we're dealing with trauma. We're dealing with areas that don't have proper services so people can start up their businesses, um, you know, whether it's government extension services or buyers. Um, there's a lack of, you know, people are displaced. They're coming back to communities that they don't know their neighbours. When we think of a village, we think well, everyone knows everyone and everyone's been around for, you know, uh, for a long time. But these are displaced communities. They're displaced for 20 years. They're coming back to areas that they don't know their neighbours. There's a lot of fear. Um, there's um, still authority presence in a political context that people maybe don't feel as safe. So all these things create challenges for people to work together and working together is really important to make your business successful in a rural context. Um, farmers need to aggregate their products in order to sell it to big businesses or to sell it to big wholesalers. They're not doing that. So as a result, they're getting poor price. They are using old practices from you know, the 1960s and 1970s. So they're not increasing their yield. So these are just a few of the many barriers, the social and the market barriers that kind of come together to which, which lead to women and families not being able to earn the types of incomes that they could otherwise earn. And of course, capital, you know, there's no money. Um, but more than having no money, um, there's maybe access to money, but maybe no knowledge in how to um, reach the right capital sources. So people are charging really high interest rates. People, there's no financial literacy. There's no safe ways to save. So the, the, the barriers are endless. Uh, and for us, it's about systematically looking at the whole thing and figuring out how to target that. So at the end of the day, a woman can have a business, can earn an income and can put food on the table for her children. Right, that's fascinating. So, um, you mentioned looking at it holistically and trying to attack it that way. What are some of the key uh, problem areas which Palmyra addresses and, and, and how, how do you do that? So what we found is it's important for us to go into what we call a last mile area, an area that's underserved where there is a lot of vulnerable people. And we then work in that whole area for five years. So there may be um, between uh, 500 to 3,000 people in that area. And we work with all the groups and we understand what are the businesses that you're trying to start and what are the barriers that you face, not just the market barriers, but also the social barriers that you face in order to um, get to those business opportunities. So sometimes it might be we don't have knowledge on these areas. It may be we don't have capital, but it may also be as a woman, we don't feel safe to go to that area to access those buyers. Or it may be someone with a disability saying, we can't actually, we don't have that mobility. And so by being there for five years and systematically working through not just one, but many different business options, we can kind of work with that whole area to rejuvenate um, those, that ecosystem. And what we found in communities where we've now done that for, for years is that, you know, the dairy sector before no one was working in dairy and now there's a booming dairy sector. There's booming agricultural sector. When we went into these villages, there was only 10% of their land was used. Now we have 90% of these areas being used because we're just systematically staying there and addressing the barriers one by one. It's not just give a cow, give some training and then move on. And so we can address this holistically and we can do it as time progresses because the barriers change as time progresses. And by being there for five years, we get that opportunity 
to, to build those relationships, understand the issues and kind of address them as they, as they arise. And then we exit out of that. Right, so once you've chosen an area, how, will you deploy a certain number of people to handle that, that area over five years? That's correct. So we hire all local staff. Um, most of the local staff would be from the villages themselves, from those areas themselves, and that creates a sustainability and a, and a knowledge when we leave. So we always hire half of the staff from the village itself, and the other half might come from, um, you know, the same area. So if it's in Mulatibu, we'll still hire within Mulatibu or Klinochi. We're not hiring overseas or from the city to come there. So we hire and build up local capacity. And that's why we also need that time because these are difficult challenges to overcome. Um, and we also have uh, the our offices in those villages. And so we really build up that local presence and we don't wear uniforms and we don't have Palmyra boards when you go into these villages, you won't see a big NGO sign anywhere. I guess that what we're trying to do is act as facilitators and have people work through these problems themselves and we just facilitate that process rather than being this big NGO that's, you know, saying we're, we're doing it, we're doing it, don't forget we're doing it. So that's what we're trying to change culturally as well in the way that we work. Right. And that way, I guess, you're more empowering people who live there to be able to eventually handle the problems when you leave in five years right by not you know taking credit and being being the big force in the background exactly and that empowerment happens in so many symbolic small ways it's not just an empowerment in the program but it's how your office looks how the people are how they engage you know so these are things that we also spend a lot of time thinking about yeah, I think it's fascinating. And um, earlier you mentioned that you started as just a volunteer organization in 2014, and eventually you transitioned into becoming a social enterprise. What did that transition look like? Um, can, you, can you tell me a bit about that? What were the differences and how do you now operate as a social enterprise? Well, initially, uh, because the country, Sri Lanka, was largely in war, there was a lot of relief efforts that were needed. So it was largely fundraising. You know, we would fundraise, we would raise some money, and we would give it over. So as a volunteer organisation, we're just running a lot of events, and we had to mobilise a large amount of people to do that. And what we realised post-war is that the problems are becoming more complex, and we had to get involved more technically, um, monitoring, designing. And so as a result, the organization shifted and we built up more technical skills in the organization, uh, development skills, skills around livelihood. Um, also, we wanted to try to access larger pots of money so Palmyra also gets some money from institutional donors. So we changed kind of the skill mix up in the organization, but we largely still rely on the, 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 the generosity of people who give us grassroots funding. Um, and what that meant was one by one, like I quit my job first, um, and then, you know, sitting in a room, not knowing what to do and how this whole journey starts, the, the usual startup story. Um, and one by one, you know, slowly by slowly, we started putting the pieces together of what is now, we still rely a lot on volunteers, but we have a core staff and all our staff in Sri Lanka are paid for, are, are paid staff. We don't have volunteer staff delivering the work. Um, that's because there's a lot of responsibility on them. But of course, all the back-end office work that we do in Australia, we try to leverage volunteers because we don't want the donors money to be spent on that it is difficult um, so when you look at our website it looks looks nice I hope but you know all that photography all that work all that design is still done by volunteers so we still have a high dependency on volunteers um, but as a startup and especially as a charity startup it's very difficult because you're not selling a product 
So your revenue stream, most people who want to give you money want to give it for delivery. So it was very difficult for us when we did the transition. We actually created a fund, a growth fund, to support our administration costs, and that's how we made that transition over. Right, I see, I see. So um, in the past, we've, we've spotlighted many traditional companies that aren't, you know, that aren't necessarily social enterprises. So yeah. can you talk us through what the difference might be between, you know, a social enterprise like Palmera and yeah. a company that someone else might be more like a, a non-social enterprise? Yeah. Well, you got to solve the hardest problem in the world and you can't spend any money doing it. <laughs> Basically, like solve poverty, you know, this, this really difficult social problem. Don't pay any staff, you know. Don't, um, don't have an office, don't spend any money on marketing, um, and, but it's got to be really good and you have to have 100% success rate, right? So this is the, these are the conditions in which we work. Um, and look, there are a lot of challenges, right? So um, salary, how do we attract good staff um, who we can't pay because people don't want to pay staff, but they, so all these things are really challenging. So we just had to get really creative. Okay, let's create a fund that pays staff, which is separate. And they, the fund, even when you attract investors to the fund, okay, they don't get a return. They're just doing it because they, you know, feel good. But they, we want them to feel good and still fund the staff and not fund the people at the end of the day because we need to develop our product. So I guess everything is different, really. You know, when you can't hire good people and you've got to solve different problems, every single facet of the business has to change um, from the way you set up to the way you have to never spend any money on anything that you would need to deliver the product. So how do you do that? Um, and you've got to create really innovative ways. And to be honest, you really rely on people who give their time and are willing to kind of quit jobs and work for no pay. And you, you really have to rely on that because how, how, else, do you, how, do you, how else do you do it? Um, and, you know, we de deliver our products based on what we have in the team. You can't always do it the other way because if you want to do all these grand things, if you don't have the people, you're not going to be able to deliver it. So it's a constant reiteration of strategy and, you know, a lot of hard work by um, a small group of people who are willing to do it, I guess. Right. So lots and lots of, lots and lots of things are different. So lots can, and lots of things are different. Can you zoom in on Not that? advisable. Not advisable is it? As a, as a, <laughs> Yeah, it's not something you'd expect to hear from the CEO of a social enterprise. <laughs> it's a challenge. It's a challenge. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to be willing to kind of work within the bounds of, of a social enterprise. Yeah, hundred percent. So I'd love to zoom in on one piece that is obviously different. Um, that seems to be very different, actually. Hiring. Yeah. How does that yeah. look, considering you have such a substantial volunteer population um, who are doing work that's very integral to operations? Yeah, so when we hire in Sri Lanka, when we hire um, is quite different to when we hire in Australia. So when we hire in Sri Lanka, um, we're really looking at, it, it is easier to hire in Sri Lanka because it is a paid position. Um, and, but we are looking, but we still don't pay the same as what a large INGO would pay or a good pay would be. So um, we have people that we try to move over from larger agencies. A lot of our managers have worked for World Visions and, and then we negotiate with them and try to get them to come to our organization and try to explain the differences that they would be able to have, more impact, more ownership, 
you know, they can really control the project. And a lot of, a lot, not a lot, many people who've worked in large agencies then desire that at some point. They desire to have that impact and they feel, I think, they can have that with Camera. So we find hiring in Sri Lanka much easier than we do in Australia. When it comes to Australia, the look and feel that we need to have as an organisation, there is a high expectation on marketing. And if I give my donation, the receipt should come on time and then this should happen on, this, on time. So we do expect from a small organisation something like the big world visions and even we just it's just kind of inbuilt we don't mean to expect it but we do um and so hiring in australia what we've done is we decided that we we, we largely from our fund that we've created we hire experts to do to do these services so yeah look just changing the the, the people model really in, in all aspects to make it work right and um so we were talking a bit, you were talking a bit about uh, larger charities and how, or NGOs and how, you know, the, the, the challenges a little, might be a little bit different. Yeah. Um, so how do you see giving changing in the future with respect to causes like yours in the sense that, do you think that people will continue wanting to give to larger charities and NGOs or will people maybe lean more towards social enterprises like yours, um, which are, which are, you know, impactful in so many ways? You know, um, they say that at a macro level, they say that trend is happening. Yeah. Um, people like to give to things they know and they can touch and they can feel. Um, I think the main challenge is people still want the transparency and the expectation of the large agency. And so I think there are less agencies that can do both. They can give the heart and the feeling of a small agency, but still give all the, you know, uh, uh, kind of processes and the reports and the look and feels of the large agency. So I think that, um, you know, it is a little bit about the donor changing the expectations a little bit and a little bit about the agency ourselves knowing who our target audience is and kind of sharing a little bit about what we can do and what we can't do and why we can't do it, which means that we need to have deeper relationships. Um, so I think that what will change is that people will have a few causes they get really deep into um, and they might be more attached to their giving than before you kind of give to a lot of things every month and you kind of don't really know what you really give to. But now I feel like there may be a deeper relationship with some of the charities, uh, you know, the fewer charities that people might associate themselves with rather than the breath. Um, yeah, is my feeling. For Palmera, we really try to create these trusted relationships with our donors. Um, so we have giving circles and, you know, different forms so we can have that relationship while still growing but still keeping that contact. So even that, you know, we really try to think through how we can do it with minimal resources. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'd love to hear more about how you try to strengthen these, these relationships that you just mentioned. So giving circles is one of them. Is, is kind of one of the big ones that we do where a group of friends come together and they give, you know, maybe they sponsor a village, but as, as a group, it might be a group of family members, it might be a group of friends. And then we don't need to meet 10 people. You know, we can meet them over a dinner once a year and then there's 10 people together. But then through the year, when those 10 meet each other, that they're, they're kind of continuing that relationship in some way and they're bonded by, um, the, the conversation that we had when we all met up once a year for dinner. As well, of course, we give them a lot of updates. Uh, we use technology a lot. So we, you know, kind of use WhatsApp and different kind of digital ways of communicating. Uh, we use video a lot. Um, so we're, we're trying to target those communications uh, and try to group people around these giving circles so we can kind of give people the kind of material they want. Because when you put something on Facebook or 
social media, you don't know who it's going to get to with anyone given the changing algorithms every day. So it's kind of hard to get through the noise, you know. So we find as a small agency those relationships is what has allowed us to grow over the years. Without putting a fundraising person in our organisation, we don't hire any fundraising person in our organisation. Right. I mean, I just saw a question pop up from someone in our, in our audience, Roshan. So Roshan asks, how do, you, do, how do you and your team go about forming new ideas and validating whether or not to pursue them? So um, a lot of it happens on the ground with a lot of multidimensional stakeholders. So right now we're um, trying to think through a problem around women facing sexual violence. Um, and so we're, when we're having these conversations about this problem, it might go on for six months and we're engaging so many different stakeholders in that conversation. It's people who've worked in that area, it's government stakeholders, it's experts, it's people in large INGOs, it's, it's just everyone having conversation, what's worked, what's not worked, why is it working? Um, and through that, we then look at literature and best practice and what's happening in other parts of the world. And through those conversations, uh, which, which has some structure because someone will be project managing that piece of work, um, we can then come to a solution design. So I guess some people know it as like human design principles or, you know, um, that's how it's kind of used in the corporate world. But it's really having empathy for the problem, deeply, deeply, deeply understanding the problem and then thinking about what has happened in the past, what hasn't worked, what happens in other places, and then trial and error through the solution design. So when we implement the project, we always have phased pilot testing processes and the way we measure that is through, you know, indicators and monitoring um, and then discussions around did it work and did, did it not work. So um, Palmyra has invested quite heavily in our monitoring um, system to make sure we can do that. Yeah, so just to, to help me better wrap my head around it, do you think you yeah. could give a specific example of um, a new project, a new idea, and then the process in which that, that went through? Yeah, so um, you know, one of the programs we run is called Gradually Most Vulnerable. Um, while it's very low in Sri Lanka, uh, absolute poverty, which is people who live below a dollar fifty a day, is quite low in Sri Lanka. I think it's like two percent or something. And we have a program that specifically targets that group of people. Uh, and that was a program that we identified in Bangladesh. That is an evidence-based program that's working really, really well. So we then hired people to learn about that program. We knew that problem was in Sri Lanka, and then we were trying to think what's the best solution to address that. So first we looked at evidence-based that was happening around the world. There was a program that was very successful in Bangladesh, and we learned about it. Then we took that program to a lot of different local stakeholders, INGOs, governments, and others who've been working on that, um, working with this group of people, people who don't have, uh, who are unable to eat three times a day. It's a structured program that has a lot of evidence base around it. Um, people discussed it and then we adapted it to the local context with this multi-stakeholder group over a three or four month process. And we then trialed it with 100 people in Quinochi. Um, so it was a very focused trial and we did it for a year. Um, and over a year we had indicators and we mapped whether we saw people graduating out of from you know, not being able to eat three times a day to being able to eat three times a day. When we saw some successes and some failures, we then had interim steps and we adapted and changed the program. And now we're pretty confident with the program. Uh, and so we then scaled it to another 200 people and then we'll keep scaling it out, you know, because we keep learning more, learning more. And there's always adaptations that you'll need to do that are localized. So it's, it's kind of a structured project. So we don't 
just come in and say we're going to help a thousand people and we're just going to figure it out as we go. It's kind of using evidence-based discussions, testing, and then the program develops itself. It's still in principles. You still have to apply it. and There's always kind of adaptations that occur as we go through. Right, that's really interesting. So there's a very structured way in which um, you go, that, which you use to tackle different problems um, yep. and, and increase success. That's very and interesting. And Palmer only works on income and livelihood, so we're not doing health and education. So we do have a built experience and technical expertise around that area. So we only focus on living income or livelihood different groups like people with disability or women facing violence it still is the ultimate aim about that thematic area um, so if someone came to me tomorrow and said how do you get people to go into university in Sri Lanka you know I wouldn't have as much built experience on that as I do in this area and, and my team has in this area right that makes sense um, I think just the story of how you got started is so fascinating, so interesting. So many people will have some idea or will be more inclined to, you know, do a traditional startup, you know, a tech startup. And you think startup, you think Silicon Valley, Mark Zuckerberg, right? I think very few people think of um, trying to trying to meaningfully create social impact, so maybe somewhere in a different part of the world. So I think it would be really interesting for you to shed some share some advice for people who want to create impact but don't really know how they would go about starting a social enterprise and, and going about it look i think you have to get experience first in some sector um, because it's very hard when you do a startup to learn skills by yourself it's kind of a slow process so if you're really interested in an impact area um, my advice would be go work for an ngo or go work in that thematic area and learn because now you know i sit in an office while i'm learning in, i learn in a different way you don't get as much technical skills and mentorship and guidance in that way that you would in a company. So my strong advice is to first get experience in the areas that you're interested in. Um, go work in a country for two years and be on the ground and learn. So you don't make the mistakes when the pressure is on you to deliver um, because it's harder to solve the problems at that point. If someone's giving you a lot of money and you've got to deliver it and you don't know how to deliver it, you might not get their funding again. So the stakes are kind of on when you've done your own thing. So, you know, I, only, I, I did this after 10 years of working in this space. I also did it very reluctantly. It wasn't my intention to do this, you know, being um, kind of of Tamil origin and Sri Lankan. Um, my family was very active in the, um, the humanitarian efforts. And I guess I just felt a little compelled as I was kind of going through my career and I was solving other social problems I felt maybe I should be doing this in Sri Lanka so if um, I guess you have to follow your heart a little bit and you know sometimes causes find you you don't find the cause um, and then I think it's about really broadening your network um, a lot relies on your own network um, and so you have to be out there having cold calls, meeting every single person who will talk to you because you don't know later when that would kind of come to fruition. Um, so whether it's donors, whether it's advice, whether it's getting people to do free stuff, you know, you've got to be able to feel comfortable to, to have those type of conversations. Um, and look, lastly, you've got to have a really supportive partner <laughs> because, you know, um, for those who may, you know, I've got, um, I've got two kids and I'm married and, you know, it's, challenging as a woman to to do this work um, and you know men also have different social pressures uh, 
and I think you've got to really think holistically if you're going to be starting a social startup because you may need to change some of life as well, you know, um, and, you know, if you have a supportive partner, that makes all the difference in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've, you've been involved in this kind of space for a while, you said 10 years. So yeah. What, what encouraged you to stay in that space? And I'm sure, you know, you probably had many other options that could have probably been more lucrative. Why did you stay in that space and decide very early on that, you know, you'd want to go on, maybe you didn't know you'd end up at Palmyra, but you ended up, you chose this trajectory very early on. You know, I, well, after the tsunami experience, I still wanted to stay in corporate and I still wanted to earn money, definitely. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't want to like, Palmyra and do a small startup definitely not at that point I still I just thought I could do a bit of both in a way like I could still be in the corporate environment I could still do things and for me and everyone has a different journey um, you know as you be in that middle space you kind of tip one way or tip the other way it's pretty hard to stay in the middle for a long time I think um, and so while I was in companies and working on shared value there was a desire for me to know that it worked and well I think we could do this but we can't because we're kind of constrained by the company construct you know um, and so I just kept tipping slowly over and then I was trying to resist the tip and then I would tip and you know like any startup I guess any founder just goes through a bit of a yo-yo for a period and then I think eventually the work just became too much it was just Palmyra was kind of starting up on the side and there was just too much work to do to do both my day job and to make sure Palmyra would be successful. And then there was a clean break from work, um, which had me then tip over. <laughs> yeah, the break, would, the break would do that. Yeah. Um, at what moment did you know that the Palm, there was something here and Palmyra wasn't just a side hustle anymore? What, what made you realize that there was something worth betting on and, and, and jumping in? Gosh, I don't know if I knew that i think i felt i there was in australia sri lankans are uh, one of the highest earning per capita in new south wales um, it's a very um it's a professional community that earns a lot of money and i just felt i had to try so i don't think i knew that it would be successful i just thought let me just try to mobilize funds i thought i would do it for two years and then i would set it up and then everything will be set up and then i'll just go back to my job and, you know, six years later, it didn't quite work out like that. So um, I think it was a bit of naivety and a bit of duty that had me started. Um, and uh, I think now I can see that while it's difficult to mobilise a lot of people for fundraising and a lot of people to volunteer, the, the, the group that we do have mobilised, I feel like there's, we can do something with this. You know, when I look at the projects we do and the funds we have, I can see the value it adds and that is what has me kind of continue to, to do it. Right. Um, and now I'd love to, you know, learn more about you. We've, we've talked about your story, which is amazing, but I'd love for our audience to get to know you a bit more. So, you know, you have this crazy work life. For a period of time, you're balancing a full-time job and Palmyra and eventually make the switch but undoubtedly crazy work life. What do you do to unwind? Well, I have a two-year-old and a three-year-old at, at the moment. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm not working and I'm not um, looking after these 
two crazy kids. There's actually like right now, it's not as glamorous as it once was, which unwinding is like sneaking so no one can see me and I can get into like a little part of my room where no one's going to open the door for 10 minutes, you know, and I can read a book. Um, Like I crave silence at the moment. That's my unwind time. But yeah, it's just just the season of craziness with life that, that I'm in at the moment that's probably like dictating that. 10 minutes of silence. That's fair. 10 minutes. Just 10 minutes. <laughs> 10 minutes. When I'm, I don't need to work and I don't need to do with children. Like, I don't need to cook. Oh, cooking and cleaning. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and also, this, uh, this, this is toasted for a Tamil audience or your Tamil. Yes. So what is your yes. favorite Tamil food? You know, I love puttu and my dad makes a mean puttu kotu. And we live in, in Australia, we live where a lot of Sri Lankans live. And so we have all the Sri Lankan restaurants right around us. So, you know, my kids are like asking for the rolls and asking for like, you know, all the, all the Sri Lankan food. So we're, we're around it all the time, but I can't, I can't go past puttu. Just, just put to an egg, you know? Right. It. Yeah. yeah. It's classic. And um, this is a bit more general. If you yeah. have a billion dollars, that you could spend towards any cause in any way, how would you spend that money? You know what I would do? I would put it all in a trust, right? And then just have it, the interest, just funds, work, um, obviously primarily, but also I'm really passionate about women facing kind of demand, you know, um, physical and sexual violence because I just think that I, I see a lot of that in the work that we do in Sri Lanka and I think that is such a... Um, that space for me and it is is just so I mean there's no words to express so I think any organization that's working to empowering women who don't need to be in those situations like in, in Sri Lanka where we work in the communities that we went to you know there was such a high percentage of people that were going to the Middle East to work as domestic workers um, in Saudi the highest um, import of domestic workers come from Sri Lanka and, you know, to see in our communities 15, 20% of women leaving as domestic workers because they needed to pay for their family and now they don't need to because that opportunity has just had me become really passionate about that issue. So that's how, that's the cause, I guess, I would um, direct funds to. But I would do it in a way that I never need to fundraise again. <laughs> just like set it up, always set up money well. That's my big learning of uh, fundraising after all these years. Yeah, trying to run a social enterprise, solve the world's greatest yeah. problems with no money. <laughs> so that's, that's amazing. Um, and kind of looking back on, on the past six years spent building Palmera, do you have a favorite memory from this experience that will always stick with you? You know, I don't reflect much on the journey and maybe it's a it's just my personality or, you know, it's just you don't always do it in the first early years of, of, of life. But we started taking over um, donors to the village. We call it the village experience. Once a year we take donors across and we just did it in February and we take 10 or 15 people across. And that has become my famous, like a really favourite memory of mine because watching other people, being, we stay in the village, you know, we bathe in the wells and, you know, squat on toilets and watching whether it's young people or older people who've engaged with us, seeing the impact that they've had and kind of watching, I guess I can't do it anymore because I'm just too involved in the operations, but I can, I can see it through their eyes. And that has me see these different facets of the work that I don't know if I could appreciate myself anymore because I just see all the detail. 
Um, but recently in January, one of the ladies was talking to um, one of our donors and I, I just saw these tears fall down her eyes. And I don't know, it's just, it's just really amazing to, to see how we can all work together to kind of create, to create this, you know, impact. So that's been nice. That's amazing. And it all started, and I think it all started with an idea you had or started working on six years ago. Yeah. Do you, do you ever reflect on that and, and think of how crazy it is that it all started with an idea you had at some point in time? You know, because it, it wasn't an idea by one person. You know, it was a group of people that just was chatting and chatting and it almost evolved so organically um, that I guess I don't always think about back to the beginning. But I always remember, and I, I tell the story a lot for those who heard me speak in Australia, but um, when I was in Sri Lanka, when the tsunami hit, I was a younger girl back then um, and at that time people didn't know it was still in the midst of war though it was at seaside time people didn't know where their loved ones were they didn't know that it was a tsunami and we were in a vehicle and so thousands of people were lined up on the streets and people were jumping into the car trying to find out their, you know who their loved ones was where their loved ones were and I, I guess the memory I always think about when I think about the beginning was um, one of the ladies who jumped in and had obviously lost all her family members. Back then I couldn't speak a word of Tamil. And, you know, all she did was she just held onto my hand. And the way she held onto my hand, you know, it was, it's, it was just so, it was indescribable, I think. Even if I think about it too long now, it would make me cry. And I think that's that moment, that human connection moment kind of keeps me going when I think, oh, what's the point of, there's just no point doing it. So that's, I guess, if I do think about it, that's the thing I think about. Um, but the idea wasn't by one person or by one in one moment. That idea of what Tamara has become and what it will become will, has just kind of kept evolving. But it all began, I think, with that desire to help, I guess. Right. Yeah. And maybe going out a bit more general. So how do you feel that the state of, how do, how do you feel about just generally, the state of philanthropic efforts within the Tamil community. I don't know what other parts of the world are like in Canada and, and, and America, but I can only talk for Australia. Most of our funds come from Australia um, through Handmade Cookbook. We get um, support and through some of our appeals that we do. And of course, there are exceptions where some people outside of Australia jump on and support us. To date, most of our funds have come from Australia. And you know, it's difficult. People in Australia came uh, much earlier. Um, and those who are doing well are probably a little bit more disconnected from their Sri Lankan heritage or their Sri Lankan identity. So it is difficult to engage. Um, and so Palmyra has spent a lot of time and effort to try to look like an organization that people would want to engage with. Um, and yeah, it's it, once you engage people, you've got them engaged, you know? But in Australia, we have to have the identity conversation first before we can get the funds. So it's a little bit more of a, a longer journey. But once people give, they give for a long time. Right. Um, yeah, and um, kind of expanding from that, what's one way that myself or anybody watching can, can get involved in what Palmyra is doing? Because you are doing some absolutely incredible stuff. You know, there's so many ways to get involved. Of course, you can just jump on the website. We, we try to crowdfund a lot of our projects. So you can jump on the website, pick a project, crowdfund to it. We're trying to be um, really mindful of giving a lot of updates 
if you fundraise, if, if you give to a particular uh, project, you can become a monthly giver. But one really easy way and something we're really trying to get people mobilised around is to pledge your birthday. So if you go to our website and you go to get involved, so www.pamara.org, you go get involved, yeah, there's, there's a link and it says start up a campaign. And, you know, if you have a birthday and instead of having a, um, getting people to give you gifts, if you're having a dinner, you say, hey, just... Whatever you want to give, give to this to, to this link, and it, it just so much money can be raised that way. You know, with, with, with quite a little effort. And we, if you jump online, you can see there's heaps of people that have already done that. So I guess you know, pledge a birthday would be the easiest one to do. Um, and but for those who don't want to do that, you know, you can make a donation, um, or you know, you can email us. And if there's a specialized skill that you have that you want to support us with. Um, you know, you can email us and we can kind of see whether that could work as well. And before we end off in the spirit of reflection, um, let's pretend that you could go back in time and give 16-year-old you any advice. What would you tell yourself? Oh, gosh, um, a lot of things. <laughs> I would say a lot of things. But, um, you know, I would say that, you know, there's a season for everything and, you know, you just have to wait out certain seasons and, you know, there's a season to, to be patient, I guess, and know that seasons will end and tough times will end and good times will end. And, you know, if you have your heart in the right place, it will eventually take you to where, where you need to go. Keep your heart in the right place and you'll end up where you need to go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it for to get this profound, but it did. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, yeah thank you so much for being involved with us today Arbarna. thank you to our audience um thank you so much for tuning in and at the beginning i mentioned to everyone that we would have a special perk for incredible audience members who stuck around till the end so um that perk is access to a really cool form a tool um, i'm putting the link in the chat and those who fill out the, fill out the um those who fill out the form will be randomly selected for a um, for a chance to win free swag. So fill out the form, you might win free stuff. If you like free stuff, do that. That'll take two minutes. Um, once again, I'd like to thank all the amazing people who made this event possible, from Shiv and Ara at Tamil Culture um, to, to Barna. So be, first of all, be sure to check out tamilculture.com to network and collaborate with Tamil innovators across the world. Um, Abarna's on there. I'm on there. Be sure to check that out. Also, thank you again for Abarna for being involved in this event. We can't thank you enough for, for tuning in and sharing your story. You're doing some amazing stuff. So for everybody who's watching, please do, please go to palmera.org right now um, to learn more about what they're doing and also get involved. Go to the site, press get involved and pledge a birthday today. Thank you so much for joining in. This has been an amazing event. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks.